This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 349. There's so many things that we're told when we're young that it's just not true. Be ambitious, work hard, you know, put your head down, it'll all happen. It's like, no, it won't. Tell people to follow your dreams. Follow your dreams at 18. Hey, thanks for joining me today. My name is Jeff. This is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I created Read to Lead because I believe that if you really want to achieve success in your business and in your life, then you have to be a lifelong learner. You've got to be an intentional and consistent reader. I try to help by making it easier to access the books you want to read by bringing you the key insights and main ideas from those books with interviews with the authors themselves. Today, we'll sit down with Shelley Archambault. We're going to dive into her book called Unapologetically Ambitious. Take risks, break barriers, and create success on your own terms. I'll ask Shelly to share about her belief that imposter syndrome is not something you conquer, but something you lean into, why she hates the phrase work-life balance, her secret to finding the right mentors and how that relationship can benefit both parties, and lots more. Each chapter of Shelley's book lays out key takeaways and key actions to increase your odds of achieving your personal and professional goals. And I'm excited to dive into it with you today. I'm also excited about my first book coming out in August of 2021. It's called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. And I would love your permission to keep you apprised of the book's progress as the launch date grows near. If that's okay with you, I encourage you to add your name to my email list. I'll not only keep you updated on the book's progress, but also send you a special free resource featuring my 12 favorite leadership and personal growth books. You can sign up at my website. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com. Shelly Archambault is an experienced CEO and board director with a track record of accomplishments building brands, high-performance teams, and organizations. She currently serves on the boards of Verizon and Nordstrom, among other companies. She's also a strategic advisor to both Forbes Ignite and the president of Arizona State University and serves on the board of two national nonprofits, Catalyst and Braven. She's got over 30 years of experience in technology. She's the former CEO of MetricStream, a Silicon Valley-based governance, risk, and compliance software company. She's also a Forbes contributor and the protagonist of the Harvard Business School case study, Becoming a CEO. In her new book, she invites us to move beyond the solely supportive roles others expect us to fill, to learn how to carefully tread the thin line between assertive and aggressive, and to give ourselves permission to strive for the top. Make no apologies for the height of your ambitions. Shelley's book is going to show us how to do that. And that new book, again, is called Unapologetically Ambitious. Take risks, break barriers, and create success on your own terms. Shelley, welcome to Read to Lead. Well, thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here, Jeff. Well, I wanted to start by having you begin where the book does, really. Talk a bit about some of what your parents taught you growing up, in particular with regard to, uh, I think, to use your terminology uh, without letting yourself play the, the role of victim, if you will. Yes. You know, I was really fortunate. My parents were, I think they were awesome. They still are. But I grew up in, in the 1960s is mm. when I started elementary school. And that was a time when things were you know, racially charged. For as many people that wanted civil rights, you had just as many that didn't. Mm. And as a little black girl, people made it very clear that they didn't necessarily 
think I was going to amount to much and didn't necessarily want me around. Mm. Um, and whenever you'd come home as a kid and say, oh, mom, this happened. Somebody treated you unfairly or you didn't get something you thought you deserved. And you'd say, oh, mom, it's unfair. It's unfair. And instead of hugging me and saying, oh, Shelly, it's okay. It'll be better next time. She basically would look at me and say, Shelly, life isn't fair. You know, it, 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 it just became a fact. And as a kid, you're kind of like, what? But it's supposed to be fair, mm. right? But it's not. So it's more of, nope, it's not fair. So what are you going to do about it? And that as a background really was like, oh, okay, life isn't fair. So that it was very clear to me that that meant that, you know, the odds just weren't in my favor. But that didn't mean that I couldn't do things. I just had to figure out how to improve the odds. And the other message that they drilled home with me was, you can't control what people say to you. Mm. And you can't control what people do to you. But you can control how you respond. And don't let them win. And her point about don't let them win was, if you let people control how you feel, then they've won. So don't let them control how you feel, right? No matter what they say, what they do, don't let them control how you feel. So that, you know, those, that combination mm. really created the foundation upon which I really approached my whole life. Yeah, what you're saying essentially is, is your response to others is, is a choice. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what, you know, what happens, I'm not saying it's easy. That doesn't mean that I said, <laughs> okay, fine, and boom, it's easy. <laughs> right. Trust me, it is not easy. But over time, you know, with practice and, and focus. So, for instance, what enabled me to do in time was to basically reframe. So, if people said things to me that were meant to demean me. Gosh, I can give you examples even not, not too long ago, right? When you mm. get announced or named to a board of directors and someone says, oh, I see you got added to, you know, XYZ board, board of directors. That's wonderful that they are improving their diversity. All right. Mm. Now, when they say that, they can mean for you to take it as, you know, so that's why you got it, right. right? It's because you're diverse, not because you're capable. So I would reframe those. So when people say that, all I can think is, hmm, are you really so insecure <laughs> that you have to try to make me feel badly about what's happened mm. uh, as a way of making you feel better about yourself for, <laughs> you know, maybe you not getting it? Um, and, and by reframing that in my mind, I can look at somebody who says it more with, you know, pity, poor you mm. versus thinking about poor me. Uh, speak to your experience that suggests, Shelley, imposter syndrome is, is, is not a one-time thing. It's not something that we're going to deal with once and then be done with. Oh, yeah. I've been dealing with imposter syndrome my <laughs> entire life. You know, So it's not even something that's in the past tense. So I have not figured out how to get over it. Mm. What I have figured out is how to deal with it. Um, and you know, it even helped as I was writing the book, Unapologetically Ambitious, because I did some research on this. Because I'm thinking, yeah, my goodness, I can't be the only one that still struggles with all this. And it turns out that most people experience imposter syndrome at one point or other. And women experience it more than men and women of color actually the most. So mm. what that told me is imposter syndrome is environmental. If everybody's feeling it, mm. then it's actually in the air. <laughs> and, and I think it's because we live in such a judgmental world. Therefore, it's not real. It's kind of like TV. Mm. You know, you, it looks real, right? It sounds real. And you can even feel real. You get scared, you get excited. But you know, it's not real. That's what you tell your kids. Don't worry, <laughs> it's not real. Well, that whole imposter syndrome thing, that little voice in your head that's telling you that you're not quite good enough or wait till they figure out you don't know as much as they think you know or all, all those things that try to make you doubt yourself, that little voice, it's not real. 
So try to set that thing aside, realizing that that's the case. And if that doesn't work for you, then typically imposter syndrome crops up when you're getting a new opportunity or mm. someone's offering you a new job or an opportunity to speak in front of a group or to be part of an organization or something, right? Something has happened proactively that makes you think, oh my God, I'm not ready. <laughs> well, they wouldn't do that if they didn't believe in you. So if they believe in you, then believe in them, <laughs> right? <laughs> believe them. And if that doesn't work, then I always fall back to fake it till you make it, which is just act like you know what you're doing. Act like you're confident because eventually you will figure it out. You always do. You had a bit of a surprise at one point while at Wharton when you learned you were building a reputation without even knowing it. Share a bit about that experience and, and what it taught you about reputation building. Yeah. So I worked while I was at Wharton. Uh, sophomore through senior year, I worked 20 hours a week with IBM downtown. And therefore, on days that I worked, I wore my suits to class because I didn't have time to go back to change and then get to work. Mm. Well, here it is senior year, and I'm in a strategic marketing class. And at this particular class, we have to have a group project, which is like half of our grade. Um, so we get together as a group. And this uh, woman who I've seen, but I didn't know really well, um, and she said to me, oh, Shelly, I'm so excited to be on your team. You have such a great reputation. <laughs> And I was like, a great reputation, you know, because I wasn't, I wasn't like Miss Popular or, you know, high profile or anything <laughs> at school. And I, I'm trying to figure out well, what does she mean? So I said, well, thanks. I, what do you mean? And she says, oh, well, I mean, you've got it all figured out. <laughs> and you've got a job already. You we walk around in suits, all formal. You're this, that. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So we are developing a reputation and a personal brand every day. And I hadn't necessarily realized it. So learning that and realizing that just made me more conscious, for sure, about you know what I was doing. But it also really set the stage. Honestly, ever since then, I've always tried in the work environment to dress probably a little, you know, whatever the standard dress is, I want to make sure I'm there, if not a little above it. Mm. Because first impressions matter. And frankly, as a woman, and as a woman of color, I need all the help I can get <laughs> in terms of gaining people's respect. So that's worked for me. And, and first impressions are hard to undo once made, aren't they? Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Hey, what is your take on work-life balance? Quote, unquote, I love what you had to say about this in the book. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, and you know, because you asked that specific question, <laughs> I cannot stand the term work-life balance. Mm. Detest it. And let me explain why. You know, what is a balance? A balance is a fixed static structure, right? It's a pole with a bar across the top and it holds two weights that are even at all times. Mm. Well, whose life is static? Certainly not mine. My, I have highs and lows and round the bends and curves. And, and I'm going to be measured on whether or not I can keep something balanced at all times. I'm handling all that. That's ridiculous. I think the term was created just to make us all feel perpetually guilty <laughs> because it's a ridiculous standard. No, no, no. I believe in work-life integration. Yes, I have a work hat. And yes, I have a personal hat. But you know what? They're all in the same head. I am the same person. And therefore, I take my work priorities and my personal priorities, and I prioritize them together and get done what I need to get done. And what I can't, I have to let go or find somebody else to handle. Mm. Well, Shelly's career required quite a few moves over the years, all while Shelly and her late husband, Scotty, were raising two kids. Shelly, how did your children handle all those moves? Oh, my gosh. Every time we moved, they hated it. Mm. I mean, you know, they absolutely did, which is understandable. I moved around as a kid, too, and I also hated it. That said, each of them, I think, at different points in school, wrote a paper 
about <laughs> being moved and dragged all around the place. Um, but I will tell you that if you were to talk to them now, and they're both in their 30s, if you were to talk to them now, they would tell you that overall, even with all the moves, they had a good experience. Mm. And it gave them the opportunity to really see the world and meet people of all types. And so as a result, they feel very comfortable changing environments, interacting with different people. You know, my favorite story is with my son. We're in, living in Japan and he is in elementary school. And I'm a little concerned. I want to make sure because he's a bit more shy. My daughter is much more outgoing. And I said to him, Keaton, how's it going? He'd been there, you know, four or six weeks in school. I said, how's it going, Keaton? He says, fine, mom. And I said, no, really. I mean, all this change, how, how are you really doing? And he looks at me like I'm stupid. <laughs> and he goes, mom, the kids are all the same. They just have accents. <laughs> like, what is your problem? Right? It was just too funny. And I looked at him and hugged him. And I said, if you don't learn anything else the whole time we're here, mm. I'm fine with that. What a great experience. I loved reading about that in the book. A lot of moments uh, in the book where, you know, the tears kind of well up as you're, as you're reading. Uh, it's such a personal book, and, 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 and I'm a sensitive guy. So as I read it, there were a couple of times where I, where I kind of welled up uh, just kind of reading about some yeah. of those experiences. Uh, well, well-meaning parents or teachers, maybe coaches, will often say, if you work hard enough, everything's going to work out. You say there's better advice than that. I do. I do. Because honestly, it's just not true. There's so many things that we're told when we're young that it's just not true. You know, be ambitious, work hard, you know, put your head down and it'll all happen. It's like, no, it won't. You know, tell people to follow your dreams. Follow your dreams at 18. How, how, many, how many life experiences that you have you had that allows you to establish your dreams for the next 50 years, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. So no, I don't like that advice at all. Um, I, it's much more if you work hard, you know, be ambitious and act strategically, then yes, yes, it can absolutely, you can achieve your aspirations. But if you just go through the motions, let somebody else control your career, you know, all those things, then no, who knows what's going to happen. I, I know you had your own doubts when it came to things like marriage. Uh, the gentleman you ended up marrying was 18 years older than you, and you got some pushback uh, from some family members along the way when it came to that. But you had the strategies you talked about just now. You, you, you strategized everything, including when you wanted to get married, when you wanted to have kids, when you wanted to, to look at a certain promotion. And, and, and I was just extremely impressed by how methodical uh, you did all that in spite of some of that family pushback in certain situations along the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, my <laughs> no one. I mean, my mother was more resigned to it. I wouldn't say she was happy about it, but I don't, but nobody wanted me to marry Scotty. <laughs> not my siblings and my grandmother and my friends thought I was crazy. So no, the, my, the easier thing to have done would have been to just say, Oh, sorry, right? This, mm. this is, this is not going to work. But I knew he was everything that I wanted and that I needed in a life partner. And so I, I believed in myself. And that's part of what it's one of the messages I really want people to, to get as well, which is yes, listen to other people's opinions, listen to their perspectives and think about it, weigh them. But at the end of the day, nobody knows you better than you know you. Mm. Well, what's been your secret, Shelley, to finding the right mentors at the right time throughout your career? Oh, my goodness. You know, I learned early about this whole mentoring thing. I, I got really, really fortunate, probably six years into my career. 
I was at IBM and IBM decided they wanted all their high potential people to have mentors, mm. but they were going to ask, they asked us who we wanted to, we wanted our mentors to be. So I was like, oh, okay. I picked a gentleman by the name of Roland Harris. I knew him. He was about two levels above me. I thought he'd liked me. So I said, all right, I'll pick Roland. Well, I got a call from Roland several days later. And Roland's like, Shelly said, hi, Roland. He's like, Shelly, you put my name down to be your mentor. And I'm like, Oh my God. I'm like, well, Roland, I, I thought you liked me. <laughs> and he said, Shelly, you've got me. Go get somebody else. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, because I learned two really important things then. One was Roland was a mentor. I didn't even realize he was a mentor. We never talked about him being a mentor. So mentors don't have to be a formal. They can be informal. Okay. And two, huh, he told me to go get another one. <laughs> I can have as many mentors as I want. So frankly, that's what I did. But I also learned not to ask people to be a mentor mm. because people you ask are the ones that are busy, the ones who have a lot on their plate and trying to get things going. And so bottom line is they don't want to do it. It's not that it's you. It's just that they don't know. They don't know if you're going to listen to them. They don't know if it's worth the time, right? They don't have the time. They just see time commitment. So I stopped asking people. I would just literally start treating them like a mentor. And honestly, I've had lots of mentors throughout my career. I've been super, super fortunate. And I talk about in the book in terms of how to adopt them. It's not that hard, but you have to be a good mentee. And I'll be candid, Jeff, most people are terrible mentees. Mm. <laughs> the mentee-mentor relationship is a relationship, which means both parties need to get value. And a lot of mentees think it's just, uh, oh, because I'm a mentee, then I should get all the value. And I love how you talked about the importance of once given advice, putting that advice into practice and then reporting back to the mentor how that panned out, making sure they're up to date on, on the fact that you took their advice and then what happened as a result. Exactly, because that's how they get their value. Right. That's how they get the intrinsic positive feeling of, oh, I was able to have a positive impact. That feels good. Well, that's value. So now the mentor is actually getting value. If you actually get advice and then go off and all the mentor hears is crickets, right? <laughs> Nothing. Well, they're not getting anything from that. And then you're just taking and taking from somebody does not create a relationship. Mm, well said. Well, related to that, I know you're a big believer in building your network all the time. Uh, what are some examples of how you went about this over the years? Oh, goodness. Everything from, you know, joining organizations that were focused on things that I believed in and had a passion for mm. and whose members I thought I had something in, in common for sure. Getting to know neighbors. You know, people think of networking as like it's all focused on the business, you know, relationships with people who can help me, I don't know, move forward, get ahead, something. But no, I, I see I see networking as much, much broader. So getting to know my neighbors was a big part of that. And because we moved often, here's my here's my hack. I'll tell my secret. <laughs> uh, when we would move into a new neighborhood, well, you're unpacking, right? Everything's in boxes. People know you're moving in, so they know things are in boxes. Well, it's not unheard of then for you not to be able to find a screwdriver or a hammer or a flashlight or whatever. So I would literally go knock on a door. Somebody would answer the door. I'd say, hi, I'm Shelly. I just moved in two doors down. Do you happen to have a hammer? We have not been able to find ours yet, right? Okay, so now they loaned me a hammer. So I've had a chance to get an interaction. And hopefully in that little bit of interaction, I told them a little bit about myself, something, right? Mm -hmm. I borrowed the hammer. I then get another opportunity because I bring the hammer back. <laughs> so now I had two opportunities to have a conversation, get a sense for the people, right, et cetera. So I would do that throughout the neighborhood, borrowing something. <laughs> um, and then 
you know, I like to cook. So after I borrowed something and returned it, then later on, when we finally found everything, whatever, I'd make muffins or cookies or something and I'd take it over. Knock, knock, knock. I just want to say thanks so much for, you know, for helping out in my time of need, mm. right? I just had a third interaction. So that's how I would develop relationships. And then Scotty and I, as a way of making sure we got out of boxes and we hung up our pictures, et cetera, within two months of moving in, we had a party. And those gatherings were super eclectic. I mean, sometimes it was, you know, neighbors, a UPS man, a, I mean, it was whoever we met. You know, you laugh, but whoever we met that seemed interesting, we'd invite. And why do we do that? Because if you invite people to your home, right, and you do something, number one, they get a chance to get to know you. But number two, they might think of you and reciprocate if they choose to do something. And suddenly you have a social life now. In a brand new place. And, and I love the, right. the motivation of setting a date for a gathering and forcing you to get everything unpacked. Listen, and- I'm a big believer in using peer pressure <laughs> to, to create. I tell people one of my superpowers is discipline and I wasn't born with it. Mm. So the way I, uh, what should I say, strengthened my discipline is by doing things just like that. Yeah. If I'm going to do something or I want to do something, I'll tell people I'm going to do it. Well, I'm super competitive, so I refuse <laughs> to come back later on and say, oh, no, I didn't do it. So mm. once I put it out there, then I have to do it. Mm. So the party was the same way. Okay, we invited people. <laughs> where they're showing up whether we're ready or not. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Shelly, in, in a few minutes we have left, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you, uh, not directly related to your book. But before I do that, anything else from the book you want to make sure that we walk away with? I have two big messages. One is be intentional about your life. Mm. By being intentional, then you have a chance to actually impact all aspects of it. Mm. And then the second is own your career. Own your career. So many people actually don't own their career. Mm. They assume that you know the company is going to figure out what their career path should be, or their mentor is going to give them the advice, or the boss has got... Well, you would never spend thousands of dollars for an airline ticket, right? Pack your bags, put your dog in the kennel, head to the airport, get on the plane, strap in, and then look at the pilot and say, so where are we going anyway? (laughs) All right, Mm. ludicrous. But we do that with our careers all the time. We spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on our education, on training, getting certificates, going to conferences, right? Building all this knowledge. And then we let somebody else control what happens. That's nuts. So own your career. And, and you're certainly an advocate throughout your career. You did this very well, is making sure anyone and everyone knows exactly where you see yourself going and making sure everybody's in the loop on that. And it's not a matter of walking around saying, okay, by the way, I'm going to be CEO, so get in line. No, I mean, no, no. You know, I know the title of the book is Unapologetically Ambitious, but that doesn't mean it's not an in-your-face ambition. Right. What it is, though, is it's having, when you have the conversation with your boss, you know, like mm. one day, yeah, one day I really aspire to achieve X. And then you would say, do you think that's a realistic goal? And now you're putting yourself out there. You're making yourself vulnerable. But if they say yes, wonderful. Now you can take their help. And suddenly you've got a collaborator, right? Mm. If they say no, that's even better. Because now you get a chance to say, well, why not? What mm. skills am I missing? What experience do you think I need? What? And now you've got a roadmap for how, what you need to go do, right? To get prepared. You know, ask and tell people in ways that bring them on board, that help them want to actually support you 
right in the process. As I read that, I was reminded of a time in radio. I come from from that industry and and was doing what you did, letting my my bosses know of my desire to come off the air eventually and 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 work in management. And that served me very very well because at one point some changes were made on the air. I was doing a nationally syndicated morning show. I ended up with a job after those changes were made off the air. My partner on the air did not because they had not taken that step of making their career ambitions known. They had to go find a job somewhere else. Um, well, as a successful speaker, uh, Shelley, I know you uh, did Toastmasters early on to hone your skills. Uh, what might be some of your tips for delivering an impactful and memorable public talk? Uh, the, the first is practice, 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 practice. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, people think that folks just show up. No, no. You mm. practice to make sure that's good. So that's number one. Two, make sure that you're telling stories. Because what people will remember are the stories. They don't remember bullet points. Right. Um, and try to try to include in your message, not just the stories, but stories that actually make them feel something. Because it's that feeling that actually enables them to remember over time. Well, Shelley, uh, what's a book or two uh, you've encountered over the course of your life and career that's left a lasting impression on you. Maybe these are books that immediately come to mind because you've revisit them often. So there's one that's actually not that old, but I, mm. I recommend it highly, which is called All You Have to Do is Ask by Wayne Baker. Because so many people have trouble asking for what they want. They're nervous, they're afraid, they're concerned. So here's a whole book on how to ask. So that's my number one. Um, and then Trillion Dollar Coach, if mm. you really want to be a good leader, Trillion Dollar Coach, which was about Bill Campbell, who was a mentor and a sponsor of mine, mm. is another just great one for building those that skill mm. um, and those experiences. So this would be my top two. You know, I love that, especially because I've asked that question about 340 some odd other times, and I've never gotten those two recommendations. So I'm looking forward to picking those up and, and checking them out myself. Great. Well, finally, what's ahead for you that you're excited about, Shelly, and able to, to share as you look ahead to the rest of this year and on into 2021? Oh, goodness. You know, I'll, I'll be candid in that I am trying to figure out what, frankly, what to do next mm. in terms of being able to help and support people and being able to achieve their aspirations. You know, I wrote this book, Unapologetically Ambitious, not because being an author was a goal. As a matter of fact, if you read the book, you'll know it was never a goal, <laughs> but it was the best way I could come up with to share more broadly the lessons I've learned and the approaches that I've taken to help other people be able to achieve what they want to achieve in life. Because frankly, Jeff, it just, uh, it's just disheartening to see how many people don't get the opportunity to do that. Matter of fact, they don't even get the opportunity to contribute to maybe even half or three quarters of their capability. And I think that is just a shame. So what I'm focused on is trying to listen to the universe you know, after talking, telling the universe for the last, you know, 40, 45 years, what it is I want out of the universe, I'm trying to take the time right now to listen, mm. to figure out what does it want from me? How can I be help, more helpful in this vein? So stay tuned. <laughs> we will. Well, the book again is called Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers and Create Success on Your Own Terms. Her name is Shelly Archambault. Shelly, thank you so much for being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. So, so excited to have you here. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. 
If you'd like to dive deeper into today's episode, find out more about Shelly, how to connect with her, those links and resources we shared, just visit the page created especially for this episode on my website. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 349 for episode 349. While you're there, be sure to add your name to my email list. I want to give you that free resource, my favorite leadership and personal growth books, plus keep you updated on my upcoming book due in August of next year. Any questions, suggestions, comments, or feedback for me, you can write me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. You'll definitely want to return for my conversation next week as I chat with the 35-year former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts, Robert Rosenberg. His new book is called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. It's a fascinating book, and I can't wait to tell you more about it. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That's it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.